And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm joined today by a really special guest, Miss Laura Hall, who has spent quite an interesting career in in a variety of positions, especially at the State Department. Laura is joining us today in her personal capacity, so just a reminder, her views are her own and don't necessarily represent those of her department. But Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Noah. I'm glad to be here. I want to start with uh, your own path into government. And I know someone of your background probably had quite a a variety of opportunities available to you, but you decided to come into government through one specific pathway. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's been quite a while, but I still remember very vividly a conversation in my senior year of undergrad where my professor in class on the study of the origins of war and what causes war and what causes peace to break out on the other end asked me what I wanted to do next. And I really didn't know. And he said, well, there's two paths. There's sort of public policy, public administration kind of programs for graduate school or a PhD program. And I said, does the master's degree require me to write a dissertation? And that was, at that point in time, a major factor uh, for me. I, I had discovered that I was, while intellectually very interested in lots of issues, I did not find the rigor of cloistered academia very interesting. I was much more interested in being closer to the action. So that very quickly crystallized for me that a master's degree in something in the public policy field was probably more appropriate because I didn't want to go and write books and teach. I wanted to go do. So I went to get my master's degree in international security policy at the University of Maryland. And when you focus on security, and especially at that point in time, I was very interested in nuclear weapons and arms control issues. There's really only one game in town. There's not a lot of alternatives to working for governments. Uh, the Obviously, the academic and think tank fields have a lot of people working on some of the substantive issues, providing analysis, some, some track to diplomacy kinds of opportunities. But primarily, if your goal is to reduce the number of nuclear weapons and the high alert status of them, government is where you went. And so I focused my study on the current status of U.S.-Russian arms control negotiations and sought a position in government through the presidential management internship program at the time, and amazingly got a job working in the office at the State Department that negotiated arms control treaties with the Russians. So it was a really amazing path that I think surprised my parents, who are both in engineering, that there was a job at the other end of all of this study of things that to them were perhaps a little bit esoteric. <laughs> to them and me both. But interesting enough, you made your way into this esoteric field. It's not where you stayed. You've moved around quite a bit. What inspired you to take other jobs? Or was it was it born of necessity? Was it born of curiosity? I've had this question often in interviews when I've presented my resume because it does look a little bit varied. I did go from arms control to personnel policy to post-conflict reconstruction and now to Middle East foreign assistance. And each one of those shifts were not planned and came out of curiosity is a good word for it, but I think also sometimes feelings of frustration or a need to try something different and finding that where I was was not completely serving that purpose. So 
the shift from arms control to personnel policy came at a time when we had just abrogated the anti-ballistic missile treaty and the Bush administration was beginning with a very skeptical approach towards formal arms control treaties. They ended up taking a lot of different approaches on nonproliferation and others that were very important and valuable contributions, but very different from where I had started. And I also had discovered that nuclear arms control was a big group of people and issues and agencies, and being at the very, very bottom of that uh, meant not a lot of influence. And I also started to get a little bit antsy about structures and processes and noticed that I was really fixating on how we were organized to respond to the changes in the international security environment, how we were thinking about nonproliferation or thinking about the role of NATO vis-a-vis Russia in areas of arms control, and that the State Department had not been organized and resourced and aligned in its personnel against those priorities and was very inflexible in responding to changes. And so in a moment of boredom during the transition period, uh, which that was Bush v. Gore, so the transition went on for quite some time, I started writing papers on different ways we might think about being more prepared and more flexible and agile in responding to changes in requirements that where we needed experts from the international security world. And I decided to cold call over to the Bureau of Human Resources, to our uh, chief human capital officer's office, was put on the phone with his executive assistant, and I started asking questions about broader department flexible policies on personnel because I was a very young staffer and assumed that I was not the first person or the smartest person to think about this issue. And he called me to come into a meeting. We talked for about an hour. And he called me back that afternoon and said, will you come work for us? And I was flabbergasted, but very excited by the idea because I felt that there was an opportunity to really rethink some of the ways we operated. And so it was a combination of a little bit of boredom on one end, but also realizing that what I was actually finding myself really interested in was the capabilities side, the management functions that supported the policy responsibilities. And I recall in my almost my first year saying, what is this discussion of the management side of the department and the policy side of the department? Aren't they related? You can't make your policy so without the management support and the capabilities to do it. So that grabbed me. And I moved over to the office of the chief human capital officer at the Department of State and his policy team. And so that's just one story about how you can't really predict what's going to happen. You can't assume that an opportunity won't make sense. You have to really explore them when they come along and take some risks. And I took a huge risk and it ended up setting me up for the next job, which is a whole nother story. <laughs> no, but it's, it, it is so interesting because I think it's a really, it's, it's a common and recurring theme that we hear not just in government, but in, in organizations of all kinds where people get involved because they care about the substance of the work. And then they find and they realize that the people in the processes are really equally, if not more important than the substance themselves, because they enable uh, success or, or set you up for failure. And so I think your, your experience will resonate with folks of many different backgrounds. And in fact, you wrote a little bit about this. You wrote about your love of substance in your early days uh, of government, but that there are, there are three things that, that you can work on in government, right? Substance, people, and processes. 
Would you talk to us a little bit about what you've learned on the people and process front? What's really worked well in government? And where have you seen kind of exciting innovations, either that you've been a part of or that you've been able to to witness that in, that inspire you to remain where you are? This is, again, advice I often give to younger people who want to come into government and who are really fired up about an issue and want to go, you know, work on issue X because that's what they read about. That's what they wrote about. They visited that country and they may get frustrated if they can't find a position that is on that topic. And I tell them my story about getting bored with arms control, even though the substance is still to, to this day to me incredibly fascinating. And what I tell them is that when you're in a job, it's not just the substance that matters for either how well you do at that job, but also how happy you are. And people and, and process are overlooked a lot of times. Some management coaches or other advisors will tell you to look for good people to work with, and that is absolutely important. But I also think people are really influenced by process. And so for me, it is has been really important to understand what kinds of work environments I succeed in, whether it's quieter, more reflective, or fast-paced and more reactive. Those kinds of questions, I think, are incredibly important for people to to listen to as they start their careers and start trying different jobs and figure out what you like and what you don't like. Do you want a process that's really well-defined and you are operating within that? Or do you like something much more flexible where you get to define how things work? I have found that, you know, I like to understand what the process is. And then I usually want to go break it and start over. <laughs> and process re-engineering is really hard in government and hard to do in a formal sort of top-down way, you know, Six Sigma and all of that. I, what usually happens is there's there's more than one process at once. And there's usually something happening behind the scenes that you don't always know about. And depending on where you are in the hierarchy, uh, you may only hear the outcome of it um, as opposed to seeing it happen in real time. And when you start to figure that stuff out, it's really interesting. How can you use that to your advantage? Who are the stakeholders and the influencers that can get to a decision, because usually that's your goal as a policy decision, at least in my work. And processes can be very implicit behind the scenes as opposed, and at the same time, you may have something really formal going on. You know, if you study foreign policy, you know all about the National Security Council process. Yes, that's all happening, but there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. And really, trying to figure out how to make that work better and use formal processes to validate and codify things that are happening more informally is an incredibly important bureaucratic skill. And it's a lifetime to master that. How do you know when you should say, yeah, I'm going to work to change this process versus this process is intractable. This, this position is not for me. That is a great question. And I think the, Humility you get from experience is really important, and I certainly have had that. When you're young and aggressive and focused on a single issue, which often you will be in an early job, you'll have one assignment, one responsibility, it's very easy to think this is the most important thing, and it needs to work, and it needs to get this outcome, and this is what we should be caring about, and my bosses need to pay attention and care about this issue. And as you discuss with your bosses or get more senior yourself, you start to gain an appreciation for the breadth of issues that are being addressed at different levels and become aware of the importance of triage and picking your battles. 
And often when you really get your boss to sort of let their hair down and talk it through, you find out the reason we're not pushing really hard on issue X is because I've got Y and Z going on and I need this person for the same reason. So we have to do this in, you know, some kind of sequence. And once you get a little bit more understanding of that, it's a little easier to try to be responsive to that and provide recommendations that take into account those broader trends and dynamics and other issues that are being dealt with. So you can present, you know, if it's a process change or you want to operate a little bit differently, you're doing it with a a better knowledge of the full context. And I think that's a really important growing experience as you move up in your career. And again, a lifelong uh, kind of thing. Every issue is different. I think when you're trying to figure out whether you want to take tackle a process or not. It's sometimes the simplest thing people forget to do at the beginning is figure out why it is the way it is. And I recall several times in human resources where there's a lot of process, right? Because you're dealing with humans, you're paying them, we're moving them overseas multiple times in their careers. There's multiple regulations. Uh, I would be told, well, we can't do X. I said, well, why not? Well, it's against the law. Is it really? Let's check that. Okay, maybe it's not against the law. It's against regulation. Okay, is that a government-wide regulation or is that a department regulation? And as you sort of peel back, occasionally you would find it's not a reg. It's not, a, it's not you know, something we've put on paper. It maybe is a procedure that we wrote. And I would say, well, we didn't dig up the Rosetta Stone in the desert and find this written on it. We wrote it. <laughs> we, can, we can rewrite it. <laughs> it's ours. Um, and at the furthest end of the spectrum, if legal requirements are at one end. The other end is what I call folklore. And there's an amazing amount of folklore around processes because writing stuff down is hard and often it becomes you get told how to do something by another person. And that that becomes a sort of folklore about, well, this is how we do it. And you don't want to be the person who says, why, 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 like a two-year-old, but there it is valuable to figure out before you go down a path, like what is actually going on? Are you dealing with law? Are you dealing with folklore before you think about changing it? And I have worked on issues where it did require a change to the law ultimately to do something. You know, does it require an act of Congress? Well, actually, yeah, that one did. And you may have to go that route. But you may also find that once you uncover all the layers of this, the way the way you would have to change the process may be easier than people thought. And that can then also expose a lot more understanding of what you do and why and what roadblocks there might be or opportunities there might be for delayering or codifying a different approach or are you doing something that way because, true story, the computer system has a data field that only has 10 spaces? You'll find stuff like that. And then you know <laughs> what you're dealing with. And it, I think that is a step that, you know, if you're looking at it from a pretty intellectual esoteric standpoint, you're going to want to, you know, break things down to, you know, kind of go down to the bare walls and say, okay, like, what are our strategic objectives? That's sometimes too hard for people. Um, maybe just striking out a step in the process or figuring out that if you can teach the IT system to give you like 20 spaces in that field, you can solve a problem, um, can make it more bite-sized and manageable, but also still have a really big impact on people. And then you can do your your cost-benefit analysis. Like, is this worth what it would take to make that change or not? What are you actually going to get out of it? Does it just annoy you? 
And one of the questions I ask my team a lot is, are we talking about a bureaucrats working late problem or is this a real problem? Because frankly, bureaucrats working late is not a really compelling reason to not do something um, because we're paid to, to get our jobs done. And if we have to work late this time to get it done, but we have a plan to fix it in the future, that's fine. Or we just need a few more people to get something done. That's fine. You don't upend the entire world just because something's a little bit frustrating. So I think being very, very cautious at the outset before you confront something head on um, is really important because you're going to encounter a lot of red tape. And one of my former bosses said a lot of the regulations and procedures you see put in place are there because somebody couldn't or didn't use common sense. And they were added for a reason. And so you don't want to blindly sort of strip things away without really thinking it through. I, I, I love that. And, and so I think it's caution, but also there are two really, really important things that you said. And the first that I heard was around the humility and respect for the system, almost assuming best intent. And it doesn't mean that it was, but it, but you if you assume that and, and approach it with a lens of inquiry, as opposed to, you know, move fast and break things. Well, maybe not everything needs to be broken, but if we can if we can approach it and ask why and do some investigation and listen, uh, then you'll be best positioned to actually affect change. And so and and that theme, I think, is really important with respect, with inquiry um, as, as a way to start. That's a great build- contrast. Can I build on that? Just one yeah, quick sure, note absolutely. that you said. Um, I remember I was in grad school and I spent some time overseas. And then when I uh, joined the State Department, I had an opportunity in my early years to do an assignment at an embassy. And, you, you know, a lot of people said, oh, great, you speak Russian, you, you know, you've lived over there, it'll be fine. There is a huge difference between operating in a personal capacity and re- representing the U.S. government. And it hit me hard when people started asking me for help with visas And I hadn't been through that process. I had not been a foreign service officer on the visa line, right? So I had to go get some help from my colleagues. Like, what do I do with this? And I think the difference between, you know, there's a reason government is slow. There's a reason you have to be careful. You are working on behalf of the American people. You are spending taxpayer dollars. You are representing your country overseas. That's a big deal. And it needs to be done carefully at, because you 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 get no do overs in some in some of these cases you you don't get to sort of declare bankruptcy and start a new startup in you know the next the next Silicon Valley it's um, it's still us we're still the United States and so I, I love the enthusiasm and the energy that we get every year we bring in new people or we get people who've come from different careers that is incredibly valuable but I think that awareness that there's something a little different. Um, when you're talking about government is really, really helpful not to say, you know, suck it up and suffer through the dumb way we're doing something. But when you make a change, it will be noticed and it may be more meaningful than just a process issue or some piece of verbiage on a piece of paper. That's actually a great segue to where I wanted to go next, which is someone like yourself is such an incredible bulwark of institutional knowledge. And you've looked at, at the processes under a microscope and you understand the way things work. I'm sure there are all sorts of emotions when you get new junior folks or new political appointed folks into your, your departments, your agencies. Can you talk a little bit about what you think works well for integrating the non-career folks or the new career folks? What does it look like when you know a high-functioning team 
is able to integrate all of its different pieces in government. That's a really uh, important point, because I think if you have too much stasis within, you know, a team or an organization, you you run the risk of, again, falling into some of those patterns of the we always do it this way kind of stuff. I, I've been really privileged to work with some incredible political appointees who brought uh, really interesting perspectives. And that's one element, the, the outside view, having worked on something different that's really valuable. The other thing that's valuable when you start paying attention to how policy is made and how people operate in a bureaucracy is a lot of times the political wrong of people are less beholden to those official formal channels and and hierarchies and org charts. So you can work with them to use their channels of communication to accomplish something that may not be easy for you to do as a career person. And it isn't a knock on the career people for not understanding the process or who needs to do what. But there's a different element of deploying that political appointee to talk to another political appointee. There's a different conversation they can have that you can't have as a career person. And when both of you figured that out and figure out how to use each other to your best advantage, it can be an incredibly powerful combination. And I've experienced that through multiple administrations on multiple different issues. There's obviously times it doesn't work, and we always laugh each time a new transition team shows up. That they always ask us things like, "Well, why don't we just do X?" Well, government doesn't just do anything, as we just were discussing. So that impatience on their end is kind of well, there's a little bit eye rolling sometimes, and there's some education about, "Well, here's why," and there's some pushback that's healthy, and usually you reach a an understanding of what is important to try to work to change and what is what is something that is basically working. But what's, what you can also do in those cases is find new allies and partners to champion something. And good bureaucrats know that you cannot own something and get too attached to it. If, if you called something, you know, acronym ABC and had a proposal under the previous administration and couldn't get traction on it, but you, the next team comes in and you sort of wait for them to ask a question and then you say, oh, let me write you a paper on that. And you propose acronym XYZ, but the paper is basically the same. They may think it's their idea. And then you've got a new set of people to champion an issue and timing and political interest and that whole triage element come into play. And it may be a very different environment than you encountered even a few months prior. Uh, and you may find more success. So I think Figuring out what role a political appointee in your organization can play, if it's a senior person or even sometimes more junior political appointees who will also have their connections throughout the bureaucracy. They may have worked on the campaign with someone who's in another agency and they you say, hey, do you know anybody over at DHS? Like, what are they up to with this issue? And you can ask them. Uh, there's a lot of that that I think people discount and don't recognize early enough on as they size each other up. But I try to look at those new people as an incredible opportunity. I, I really like the framing there of, of opportunity. And I think it, it speaks to another kind of concept that I, that I really appreciate, which is the growth versus fixed mindset, right? And, and thinking about ways that you can uh, learn from and engage with other folks as opposed to you know, trying to freeze them out of a, of a process that is fully yours. 
the other thing that you said that really um, that resonated with me was was in some ways your greatest success is not seeing something with your name on it move forward, but it's getting someone else to think that they created the idea. That's probably your greatest chance of success in, in some cases. So government doesn't have equity in that you know you don't get uh, some massive financial windfall for seeing a policy of yours move forward, but it does have equities in that there are institutional interests at stake for every process and learning how to navigate those is essential to to have a, a successful career such as yours. There's one other piece that I think you, you've alluded to here and you've certainly written about, and so I wanted to touch, and that's how new folks or folks coming from the outside can learn. And some of it is just the on-the-job realities in real time. The other piece that I, that I think matters a lot to you is mentorship. I'd love for you to speak a little bit about what mentorship has meant to you in your career and, and how you found some of your mentors in government and what you think the responsibility of mentors are today. In my experience, I've had a lot of mentors who have been more informal in the sense that a relationship developed in an office where someone who maybe wasn't my supervisor but was adjacent and uh, that I thought was had interesting things to say or to to tell me became an informal confidant. It's the hey, are you busy right now? Can we go get lunch? And, you know, I'm really frustrated about this thing today. And then the stories start and some of the advice giving can start. And I find that much more likely to be successful than a formal program where you're matched up and assigned. If you're an introvert and you're not comfortable doing that, I think ask for and join those mentoring programs and really demand all the support you can get from your organization. That is completely appropriate. But don't miss the informal sort of in the moment opportunities. And think of every engagement with people that you admire as a learning moment. Try to file away things you hear, things you observe. Uh, It may not stick the first time, but if you see it happen several times and say, wow, that I see how that worked, try to remember what they did and how they did it so you can understand that for the future or go back to them later and say, when you thought about that meeting or you thought about how to organize that process, what, how did you go through it and ask about it in the moment um, when something is fresh and live rather than a more you know, general, give me career advice. How should I think about where I want to be in five years? Those are hard questions for people. I think, tell me how you did that. Peel back the curtain for me. Help me understand what was going on is is something people are much more interested in doing. If you get people into storytelling, you'll get a lot. It's a lot more likely you'll get good good fodder from that. So I think that's a really important part of how you think of in your own career about getting advice and and getting mentoring. And then there's people that you make those connections with that I come back to over and over. There's someone I try to have lunch with, a nice restaurant out of the office a couple times a year. Just hey, how you doing? What are what are you feeling? What are you learning in your new organization? And someone who has seen you grow, but at a slight distance, is someone who can say, "Hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? This makes no sense to me. You, I see this happening, and really call you out on things." And I think that's a work relationship that's also valuable to to cultivate people who will call you out and and notice things and and tell you things you need to hear, whether they're uncomfortable uh, or not. In terms of the other way around, being a mentor to other people, I think that goes with a job. And it's part of, you know, performance feedback and cultivating uh, new talent and trying to encourage people to get training 
or opportunities is has to be seen as part of the day job. It's not a thing you do once a quarter or once a year, God help us. It has to be constant. Uh, you have to say after a meeting, hey, that went really well. It was a great contribution. Or did you notice how you lost people when you started doing X? You know, let's think about that the next time. Or we have an opportunity for someone, only one person from the team to go to the congressional briefing this week. Uh, you haven't done this before. I want you to go. Let's sit down and talk about it beforehand so you feel comfortable. You know, that kind of constant um, team building in terms of individual capacities and spreading out opportunities is a way of mentoring that I think has to happen ongoing all the time. Absolutely. And and you've actually taken on an interesting method for this as well. I, I noticed we, we talked a little bit earlier about you've, you've started writing uh, a lot more. And I'm, I'm curious if you could tell our listeners what inspired you to start putting some of the lessons that you've learned or, or some of your thoughts out in public, because that's not something you see every day from from folks in your position and from folks inside the government. Well, thank you for reading it. And I hope it becomes more interesting for a lot of other people. I've started to publish on LinkedIn, which makes it really easy to do sort of from a technical perspective. And of course, I had used that to build a network of people that I had worked with in various capacities. So I didn't lose track of them. Um, in my field, a lot of people do move agencies or locations. So I found that to be a really valuable way to know what people were doing. And so I Decided to write one day when I was working for a fairly new political appointee who had a deep experience in the legislative branch, but not in the executive branch. And we'd spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one after meetings or preparing for meetings talking about, well, this is how this works here, or in my experience, this is what I've seen. And I heard myself saying things I'd said over and over again, some in analogous to the sort of people process substance point, I'd heard myself say those things over and over again. And I thought, well, let me try to develop this a little bit more. Is it more than just a bumper sticker slogan level comment, or is there something deeper behind it? And so I said, maybe I should write this down and see if it's uh, of use to other people. The other thing I was trying to do was operationalize some of these points and think about Look, I'm busy. I have a short attention span many days. Um, the the idea that maybe there are a few quick things that I could stash away and come back to later and remember was compelling to me. And so I've started to write mostly on management and process and career kinds of issues, not as much on substance. And found that it's really interesting, even for myself, to think, okay, when I when I tell you to do X, what do I really mean? What are some key questions or steps someone can take to take that advice to the next step and actually apply it? And so I'm thinking about it in a very operational way of what can someone take and use potentially today that might be useful to them. And I've, it's been interesting to see the kind of feedback and responses uh, that I've gotten as I've shared some of those. So I hope uh, others will find them interesting as well. It's great stuff, and I'd encourage our listeners to check it out. Laura Hall's uh, LinkedIn page. I hope you keep doing it. As we're reaching the end of our time here, I, I wanted to just invite you to reflect a little bit because any one of your uh, jobs or responsibilities or or experiences really could have been the subject of an entire hour's uh, interview for sure. Whether it's been at the State Department or the National Security Council, you've just had such a really interesting breadth of experience. And I'm wondering if you could share with us when you've felt at your best, what 
across those experiences motivate you to to seek out more and to keep going? I have found that there's been a common thread between many of the jobs that I've had once I sort of figured out a little bit about what made me tick. And there's a great term um, in the management field called linchpin jobs. And I've discovered that that's where I'm best in terms of the kinds of processes and the functions that I like to perform. And linchpin jobs are typically ones that you could denigrate as sort of a cog in the machinery. But of course, without the cog, the machine won't turn. So the metaphor works both ways. I've found that these are jobs where knowing how the system works or knowing how to engage people on any topic is really valuable. And the ability to connect different thoughts, different issues, different organizations, have them work together or take lessons from one to another or be the filter and the spokesman for something is these are these are underappreciated soft skills that uh, are really broadly applicable regardless of what substance you work in and i've found that those kinds of those kinds of jobs where that function is the main part of it are ones where where i excel which is very different from people who may want to really own something start to finish or really want to see impact on the ground directly and personally. So I've learned that about myself and that's been the way I've thought about different jobs uh, over the course of my career. The other thing I've learned is that, uh, which is very similar, but a slightly different point is that the management functions that are behind the execution of policy are not only incredibly important, but they're really interesting. I mentioned my parents are both in engineering. So I think part of my brain makeup is problem solving. And that is a place where problem solving is a requirement. Uh, you have to figure out things in the management world slightly differently when you're talking about things that are operational or tangible than when you're talking about policy points or how you have a diplomatic engagement using you know, words and meetings. And so I find that part of it really interesting. And what motivates me about it is not just the thing I do on any given day, but what it's in service of. And I feel incredibly motivated by supporting the people who are out in the field, which is where most of the work that I support is. It's happening in capitals and in subregions and provinces around the world where people are negotiating or delivering assistance to meet U.S. national security objectives. And I support them. I help them have the capacity to do what needs to be done. They need to have the resources. They need to have the right personnel. They need to have money move at the right points in time. They need support managing negotiations with the White House or Congress. And I feel very much connected to that work, even if I'm not doing it myself directly. And that's that's hugely motivating. And the things about changing process I'm always focused on how do we make it better for them? You know, you could institute new ideas and new processes that then impose a lot of work for people. So you have to think really hard about the person out there, maybe with not as great an internet connectivity or in an environment where there's a huge security risk. And do you really want to layer another requirement on them? So that connection to the field is really valuable uh, to keep in mind and remember the mission set that you're ultimately working for. And that's been one thing I think you'll see across the federal government with um, the high level of motivation by mission. Regardless of what people work on, if they feel connected to the ultimate mission, you're going to get a better product, you're going to have happier employees. It's pretty basic. 
And it's not that hard to explain to people how their role fits in. Good managers should be able to do that. And I've been lucky to have people constantly remind me of that objective. And it's also important when you work in those kinds of uh, management jobs or the linchpin jobs to find ways to have those connections with people who will give you that perspective, even if you're not getting it yourself. So I have tried to cultivate a network of friends and colleagues that I can talk to, whether informally or formally, and sort of road test things. Say, how, what would this look like for you? You know, if, if I rolled this out and you're in Embassy X, like, how would people react to that? Please give me a gut check. Give me that reality check from where you sit. And having that um, sort of conscientiously making sure you're able to have a wide array of contacts that you can reach out and talk to has made my career much more interesting, for one, but also I think it's made it more effective. Cultivating a network, execution going beyond substance. This is all really, really great stuff, Lauren. Thank you. And before I let you go here in a second, any final parting words or advice you'd like to share with our listeners, some of whom may be considering either a career getting involved in public service, others may just be interested. Any final words that you'd like to leave them with? Well, don't tell my former bosses in human resources at the State Department, but one of my pieces of advice is don't get so wrapped up in the federal government. And I know I said I started out my career with a single-minded focus and arms control is pretty much the province of, of the federal government. But for most issues, there are today, there are so many other interesting places where work is happening. I think states and cities are doing amazing things on issues related to you know, infrastructure and climate change related to uh, secure, you know, human security and, and criminal justice. All of these are issues that for those of us who work overseas, we give advice to other countries about. But it's also incredibly important that we stay true to those values at home as well. And so if you have a topic you're interested in, there's probably a domestic element as well, in addition to any any overseas element. And there's something I think really important about being connected to America before you work on things overseas. So that's one advice I would give to people thinking about foreign affairs issues is don't ignore the domestic angles. Um, not only are we more interconnected and things that happen in our country and other countries affect each other. So you'll, you, you'll probably find an international element anywhere you go. I mean, many cities have world affairs councils, many, you know, mayor's offices do trips overseas. But I also think it's really important to understand and promote American values at home so that we can, in fact, be a model overseas. That is a fundamental, important issue that I think particularly resonates today. And then in, if you're interested in other topics other than foreign affairs, there's so many different places that interesting issues are being dealt with in the private sector, which is a major actor in so many issues. It can't be ignored. You also have, of course, the nonprofit uh, sector. And again, states and, and localities are doing a lot of really interesting work. So I think look broadly, think geographically about interesting places. Washington, D.C. will always be here. Uh, the federal government will always be here. There's a huge value to having different experiences. It's harder sometimes to get into government uh, than we think it should be. But there's also a growing 
reliance on external partners, whether it's a public-private partnership or a contract arrangement or a cooperative agreement with a university or a think tank. There's many, many ways the federal government gets its work done, and not all of it is through a career civil service position. So we want all these great people to want to come participate and join us in the federal government. We need the best people, but I also don't want anyone to feel like that's the only route and that if you're frustrated at that first step, that there's, that's it, that's the end of it. You'll never uh, have a role in, in federal policy. So I think I would encourage people to keep at it and keep the, keep their interest, find out what really resonates for you and keeps you motivated. It may change and don't be afraid of that. I find myself, for example, really interested in several domestic policy issues that I used to not pay any attention to. Heed that. Follow it. It's uh, it's okay if you don't get that perfect job in your field that you studied for, that you got your diploma for. I did that. I was in that job for two years. And now, you know, 20 years later, I've done four or five other things. So just don't get stuck on one idea and one perspective. Turning focus inward and thinking broadly about public service, I think are great takes as always, Laura. So Thank you so much for being here with us today. And and thank you also for all that you have done and continue to do on behalf of the country. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Noah. It was great to talk to you. And I hope folks uh, continue to be inspired by the people that you're interviewing. You've had a great uh, lineup of guests. Thank you, Laura. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes. 